welcome to Track. Track? Hey y'all, I'm Bailey. And I'm Nathan. And you're listening to Track Talk. Lucky you. I hope you're all having a wonderful week. We apologize for last week's hiatus, but... That's probably going to be the new norm. Just based on our schedule, the rate of putting these out, and how much time goes into doing the notes and coming up with the theory that we're going to talk about and finding a recording space and doing the editing, just a week turnaround is starting to slip away from the realm of possibility. So hopefully you'll stick with us as we try the bi-weekly thing. Thank you. Let us know if you have any suggestions or if you would like to do marketing for us. That would always be helpful. Speaking of marketing, you can get in touch with us on facebook.com slash track talk. Tweet at us at track talk show. You can sponsor us on Patreon. And the very best thing that you could do is leave us a review on iTunes. We would really, really appreciate that. If you do, we will say your name on the podcast. We will sing your name on the podcast, in fact. And we would appreciate five stars, but we will sing your name on the show even if you give us a bad review. Uh, yeah. 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 Just a review. That's Any a, kind of review would be nice. Idea. All right. All right, Bailey, what are we talking about today? So this week we're going to be talking about the 1970s. This is the third episode of our decade series, mm-hmm. if you're keeping track. And um, the theory that we will be connecting to the 70s is structuralism. What? Throwback. Structuralism. Structuralism has made an appearance in every single series. It's like the most i don't i wouldn't say it's the most prevalent theory but it's the most like baseline theory i feel like i would say it's the most iconic literary theory yeah for and for me it was the most interesting when i was learning about it in school it re- it resonated not just in terms of literary theory which i think it was very rich with possibility for exploring texts in a way that i hadn't before but it also impacted my everyday life in a way that a lot of other theories didn't how did it impact your everyday life well should we get into talking about structuralism cut right to the chase Sure. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what structuralism is and what it means and how it works in literature. So we're trying to keep this episode pretty clipped. We've been running over time and we're trying to we're trying to keep these at about 30 minutes a piece, but that hasn't really been the reality recently. But uh, if you want a more in-depth discussion of structuralism, you can listen to our first episode ever about Closer by the Chainsmokers. We also talked about structuralism at length in our country music episode. But, as just a quick little refresher, the two main contributors to structuralism were Ferdinand de Saussure and Charles Pierce Sanders. Ferdinand de Saussure put together a bunch of lecture notes about the idea of structuralism, and then he died before he was able to publish it, but his graduate students compiled all of his work and published it posthumously on his behalf. Essentially, the idea is that everything in life, he was talking about anthropology and literature, but... Pretty much everything that we experience as humans can be reduced down to a structure or a language, a system of rules by which our everyday experiences, our thoughts, our music, our language, everything follows. And so within that framework, everything can be broken down into a signifier and a signified. The signifier is the sign or the the words on the page, or the sound that we make with our mouths in order to gesture toward or conjure an idea. And then the signified is the thing itself, the thing that we're gesturing towards. So the classic example is, you know, the sound cat is associated arbitrarily with the notion of a feline. Something that's been a little bit more recently meaningful to me is I've been trying to learn the ins and outs of Twitter rather unsuccessfully, but I've been relying on Bailey <laughs> to explain to me 
when you tweet at somebody and where it's buried in the in the tweet itself so that it's public, how to do retweets, all of this new language that I'm learning that's kind of based on English, but it's also based on its own structure, its own systemized set of rules that coordinate how everybody can communicate and interact in a cohesive, consistent way. Another thing is uh, we were we were watching a Crash Course study skills episode. Crash Course mm-hmm. is produced by PBS Studios, and it's a wonderful set of uh, half-animated, half-real-person-hosted school subjects, in-depth courses on economics and, and world history and politics. Uh, but one is study skills, and they were talking about how it's important to delineate when you're learning something between the syntax and the meaning. And the syntax is what the professor is saying to you, the actual words that are coming across space and time to enter your ears. And then it's your job to reinterpret that into the meaning, the actual substance of what he's saying and what he's trying to present to you and teach you. And so that's that's kind of the same distinction that's made by the structuralists in The Signifier and The Signified. The last thing I want to say about structuralism before we get into it is uh, structuralists are interested in identifying not just the structures that make up a work, but also the ways in which those structures are broken. Uh, in the Country Music and Structuralism episode, we talked about the trope of the deal with the devil, the Faustian sell your soul to the devil in exchange for power, and how that plays into the Devil Went Down to Georgia song by Charlie Daniels Band. But it's also subverted and twisted, and the meaning is changed because of its callback to that trope, but also its deviation from the expectations that we have associated with that trope. Uh, Am I missing anything, Bailey? I kind of just went on and on and on. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a really good summary. I would also mention that structuralism isn't just about language itself, but it's also about everything that we perceive in our lives. So it's also like the structure of institutions and the structure mm-hmm. of cultural norms um, and the like culture itself, the way that we interact with one another, the yeah. way that we relate to each other, etc. And I believe there's a word for that. What word is that? It's the word semiotics oh, about yeah. how... Everything follows a sort of structural framework, even if it's not language. It's also, you know, we've used the example in the past of, uh, it, it's how we know what the red, green, and yellow lights on a stoplight mean. It's how we know that it's appropriate to hug a close friend, but not your boss at work. Things like that. Yeah, totally. Okay. I think that's a really good introduction to structuralism. So I'll real quick give us a little background on what was going on in the 70s. So we have some some framework for the the structure of the decade. Please. The the semiotics of the 70s, so to speak. The semiotics of the 70s. All right, Bailey, learn us something. Okay, so the 70s, the 60s were very like free love and like everyone works together, but in the 70s it was more about rugged individualism. And Hmm. um, there was increased political movement, the women's rights movement was growing, but there was an economic recession going on. And also the end of the Vietnam War, after there were these massive anti-war protests and environmentalism was getting bigger. And there was a lot of frustration with war in general, and people were kind of stopping the community thought and, and focusing more on the individual. So... Some big players in the 70s were Stephen Hawking, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, Star Wars, Bruce Lee, Battlestar Galactica, Stephen King, Bell Bottoms, and Lava Lamps. <laughs> Classic power team. <laughs> what genre was Stephen Hawking again? Disco? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Um, that's really interesting, Bailey. I was also reading that there was a lot of conservative backlash, and that's especially what led to Nixon's presidency and then his uh, re-election in 72. Totally. There were, there were a lot of people who were bemoaning the loss of traditional American values, and that's sort of what put the kibosh on the women's rights movement, the Equal Rights Amendment, which I learned that Congress approved in... 1972, but we still have not reached the threshold for ratification with all of the states. We need 38 states. We have had 36 so far. Uh, in March of 2017, Nevada ratified the ERA. That is absurd. Isn't that weird? But there was this conservative backlash against what was perceived as over-government coddling of poor people and black people and getting involved in environmental issues and these these weak war protesters uh, who weren't upholding traditional American values. So there was a real schism politically in the country, and I think that there was this looming idea of retrograde values as opposed to this this free love liberalism of the 60s uh, trying trying to get back to the good old days. Totally. All right, well, let, let's circle back to that in just a second. But until then, I thought that we could just lay the groundwork for structuralism by talking about what you think the structures of music in general are. Ooh, that's a tough question. I'm not <laughs> I'm not really a music person. I don't play an instrument. I never really got music theory. Um, first of all, the idea that you, you know, you play chords that are in the same key. Mm-hmm. You try to you try to keep like sounds together. You don't just go all over the place and play all the keys on a keyboard. <laughs> Why not? Because <laughs> it sounds bad. It's just inherently, and that's what's interesting about structuralism, is there are some, and we can talk about this more, structures that kind of seem to arise naturally out of the order of the universe, as opposed to human structuralizing uh, and imposing our own artificial constraints on things. But anyway, chords in the same key, uh, generally 4-4 four, four time, I've noticed is, is a lot more popular, at least nowadays. We don't really do waltzes. Uh, the verse chorus verse structure, and there's at least one 70s song that I want to talk about that throws that out the window. But for the most part, popular songs follow a verse, followed by a chorus, followed by a verse, and then there's a hook in there somewhere, usually in the chorus. And a bridge. Sometimes a bridge, but not always. Um, oh, rhymes. Yep. There tend to be a lot of rhymes, in at least in lyrical music, and they tend to follow either an AABB or an ABAB format. What else? What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree with all that. I think that, um, I mean, we have, like, the structure of notes themselves, first of all, and we need to understand, like, musical notes and, like, where they fall on the scale and how they relate to the sounds that come out of the piano, etc. Mm-hmm. Sure, and high and low notes are, are structured in relation to each other. Yeah, but we also have harmonies and melodies that go um, side by side. And they sound nice together, but if someone was trying to harmonize and, like, was a little bit tone deaf, we would definitely notice that, right? That's me at the end of every single one of our episodes. No. At least for the first four takes, and then you correct me. (laughs) You don't have to tell people that. Compulsive honesty. (laughs) And um, we also understand rhythms and how they make us move in certain ways. And we understand time, like you were mentioning, 4-4 time, um, like beats and yeah and also genres themselves are structures Mm -hmm. so do you think that it's important to understand how those structures play into creating music Uh, especially just from a a, an observer level Uh, we're not making the music we're just enjoying it is important to to nitpick that and is it important for us to 
adhere to those structures when we're making music? If we were making music? Well, those are good questions. And I think that we can definitely enjoy music without understanding everything that goes into the creation of it. But I do think that a certain level of appreciation is needed for the actual structure itself, maybe? I don't know. What do you think? The science of music? Sure. To appreciate the fact that it doesn't just spring forth spontaneously. It is actually the result of, of people mathematically and structurally composing something. Yeah. So why do you think that having a structure of music is important? Um, I think that it gives us consistency as listeners. You know, it's not it's not moving the goalposts for each new artist. We can compare apples to apples. How many idioms can I fit into this? Um, <laughs> you can compare the quality of one hip-hop song to another hip-hop song. It's not just totally out of left field. There's another. Um, <laughs> it's It's at least superficially structured in a similar enough way that you can compare it to another similar specimen. And then I think that familiarity also breeds comfort and enjoyment. It, it gives us a, a feeling of completion. And, and these, these forms have been shown and time-tested to be resonant with us in a, in a either natural or an indoctrinated way. But either way, I mean, they're still enjoyable. We find calm and value and fulfillment in listening to these forms repeated. Totally. And it, it even, like, gives us the understanding to know when something is a song. Like, you know when you're turning on the radio, when you're listening to a podcast versus a song. Mm -hmm. And then it turns out to be, like, a, an ad jingle. <laughs> Sometimes I do get confused by that. I hate that. I hate when I really When you start, hear something really catchy. Or if I'm, like, listening to a playlist on YouTube, and then I'm like, oh, I love this song. And then they're like, buy a Kia. It's like, fuck. I thought I had good taste. By the way, this episode's brought to you by Kia. And also by you, our kind sponsors on Patreon of the future. Okay, so let's circle back to what we were talking about before. What do you think were the social semiotics or the non-linguistic structures of the 70s? I think that pop culture, which is what we're talking about in terms of popular music right now, is very dependent on or draws from the youth culture. And I think that the youth culture was very disillusioned with the traditions of the past and this conservative backlash, and it was more enamored with the hippie movement and the diversification and experimentalism, the, the anti-war sentiment. I, I think that there was a lot of desire for change. You can see this in, in the momentum that the women's rights movement started to gain before being quelled a little bit. But I, I think that there is a popular desire for newness and innovation and a sort of disdain for the status quo and the traditions of old, the the kind of close-minded people wanting to stay mired in the past. I mean, we're all very disillusioned at this point by the war in Vietnam and the ideas that, you know, it was kind of a spurious conflict that we got into off of the high of World War II. There's the Watergate scandal early on in the 70s that make people disillusioned with big government. I think people are just primed for a change, and they want to innovate. They want to. They want to see what's next and what's new. What do you think? So you think that the the social world of the seventies was was looking for some innovation. I think that for the large part, pop culture was ready for innovation. Okay. Um, definitely not all of America. I mean, like we said, that there were these uh, factions of staunch conservatism that wanted to restrict like the the equal rights amendment and and refused to ratify in their states there were there were people who were sick of these these hippies and and welfare programs of LBJ 
Um, that was a, that was a big part of Nixon's platform was that he would remove a lot of these social welfare programs. And that was clearly, clearly popular enough to get him reelected. So I, I wouldn't say that this is speaking for all of society, but I think that in terms of the music that we're seeing coming out of this time, that's kind of a precipice that pop culture and youth culture was standing on. Yeah. I kind of have a theory that that's where Star Wars came from, was that, like, need for change. I mean, Star Wars revolutionized movies completely. It innovated cinema itself and the genre of sci-fi. And so maybe all of that Hmm. need for something new, something fresh, something different was embodied in Star Wars. Interesting. Yeah. No, I I think that there was a lot of... um, individualism, conservatism, both economic and personal, but also that was that was leading up to social liberalism and progressivism and eventually more feminism and we get new songs like play that funky music white boy white boy by wild cherry where we're kind of changing up the expectations, you know. Mhm. So, speaking of 70s music since we're getting into it now, uh what would you say the state of 70s music is or what it what is the what is the structure of 70s music in general maybe what does it have in common so i think that a lot of 70s music was following directly in the footsteps of the 60s which we covered le- or 2 weeks ago sorry mm-hmm. um so it's difficult to address a category or a decade of music so broadly right um well but that's the bite that we've torn off right right in this series So really, I think it's mostly about where artists place their values. Like, the music of today, we can hear the production value. We can hear how different it is from a 70s song because it is so highly produced and so much money is put into creating the song. Nowadays? Nowadays. But in the 70s, it was more... The the values are placed more in the themes of rebellion, kind of saying... I'm a do me. The value was in the self. And they, they even call the 70s the me generation, which I think kind of came out in the music. And was probably coined by these grumpy older folks who who saw the entitled youth. Right. And that's what happens always, right? Millennials have ruined everything. Well, at least we're not the me generation. We're the MySpace generation. MySpace generation? I don't know. I feel like that's a corollary to the me generation. Moving on. Okay. But also, yes. <laughs> what do you think makes something a 70s song? Um, I think you're totally right. I think that the common thread throughout 70s music is that it highly values change and innovation and experimentalism and uniqueness. Yeah. Uh, not feeling the need to, to follow in the footsteps of 60s artists and, and not being afraid of trying new things. Would you be interested in taking a genre that was popular in the 70s and talking about what makes a disco song? Um, John Travolta makes a disco song. He could? No, I mean, he he is the embodiment of disco from Saturday Night Fever. Okay. Elaborate. With the, with the, you know, the white bell-bottom pants and the smarmy attitude and the slick back hair and the, like, going out onto a dance floor in a very vibrantly colored nightclub, jutting his hips out to the side and doing that point at your hip and then point up at the sky thing for some reason that was very popular or doing the doing the V's across your eyes. Um, in terms of the music itself, disco came out of the discotheque club scene. It was very popular in like Philadelphia and New York amongst gay neighborhoods and uh, black and Latino and Italian subcultures. 
there was a lot of emphasis on like these syncopated electric bass lines and the removal of electric lead guitar. There really wasn't much of that. There was a little bit of classic orchestral instruments, you know, a lot of uh, flute and violin, but then there were also a lot of uh, like hi-hats or what sound like, you know, I, I might be 100% off base here, but like, you know, in Staying Alive, it sounds like a tambourine or a maraca, but that like really fast, high drum sound following kind of the aesthetic of the 60s. I think there was a real like psychedelic aesthetic and uh, themes of, of love and acceptance. Uh, there weren't really many aggressive, grungy disco hits. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it was, it was dancey and diverse, funky um, and synthetic. And also there were a lot of group dances, mm-hmm. uh, like the hustle going on. Do you have a specific song that you would like to go through as an example? Well, speaking of group dances, I would have loved to talk about the YMCA, uh, but I actually decided to uh, to dig a little bit into one of my other favorite disco songs, Le Freak by Chic. Say Chic. You know the song? Yes. So the reason I chose this to talk about on the heels of, you know, what it means to be a a 70s song is because it starts out talking about this new dance craze, this new dance called Le Freak, which, you know, even, even just the name of it, it's freaky. It's, it's different. It's weird. It's wacky. It's not mainstream, but it still has the ability to burgeon into this immensely popular phenomenon, uh, which it did. Freak out. Um, I actually, uh, I, I was reading about it, and apparently the, the lyrics were originally called, Ah, fuck off! What? Yeah, it was, uh, the group was denied entrance to Studio 54 um, by a doorman, and in the jam <laughs> session afterward, they were singing, Ah, fuck off! And then they changed it to Freak Off, and that didn't test very well, so then they <laughs> eventually did Freak Out. Freak Out is so much better. It is way better, yeah. Uh, but I think that it was it was also neat that while they had such an emphasis on innovation and a brand new dance and doing things totally new. They also weren't the first disco hit, uh, so they were building on that tradition. But they also included these wonderful uh, violins, which I see as, you know, an incorporation or even an appropriation of classic instrumentation, uh, classic elements, things that have worked in the past, uh, structures that have that have stood the test of time that we're bringing back and incorporating, the, but in a, in a unique new way that, that doesn't necessarily fit the structure of the 70s before that time. What do you think? Yes, I think that's a very good, uh, succinct discussion of Le Freak. Yeah, it's it's mostly about, like, dance moves. They're saying, everybody's doing it, you should also do it. It's a little counterculture. Um, but it also had some artists of color, so that was kind of against the structure of the 70s for the most part. Oh, I thought they were all black. The, yeah, that's right. Oh, you Sorry. said some. Sorry. Uh, they, a sprinkling of color. Se- several humans <laughs> of color. A number of black people. Um, cool. So... Since we're talking about humans, you know, let's switch to talking about structures in 70s songs that correlate to anthropological structures. So where do you see repeating facets of human experience across cultures and or generations? Yeah, I mean, that's really fundamental to the the original context of structuralism. Uh, it was based in a lot of anthropological 
concepts. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that I think one '70s song that really encapsulates the idea that there are these structures that permeate all of human existence is uh, "I Will Survive" by yeah. Gloria Gaynor. So the song is all about how you know she doesn't need this no good guy that keeps trying to come back into her life. She's ready to break it off clean. She wants him out of her house, uh, and she's going to do just fine. But the song starts off with. Which I think is a structure that we see throughout not just songs, but also literature, uh, mm-hmm. and, and also through just anthropologically our, our human experience, where when a relationship is ending, we feel desperate to do anything to, to hold it together, to try to patch it, no matter how poisonous it, it is. Yeah. Um, so at first, afraid, we're afraid of losing that comfort and security and, and the, the normalcy of a relationship. But as we start to take time apart, uh, we realize that we will survive. You know, we will be better and, and grow stronger, uh, just like Gloria does. Um, and I think that that's a theme that we see across culture. We, we all experience that in our failed relationships and the way that we move forward from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also hear it continually brought up in other forms of media. An example of which is escaping me in the moment, but uh, you'll just have to trust me. <laughs> yeah, I, I was even actually going even farther back in anthropological themes, and I was thinking, like, just the theme of, like, surviving after facing adversity is going as far back as natural selection, all the way back to, to Darwinism, survival of the fittest. Um, I'm going to make it out alive no matter what it takes. Um, and kind of like relying on your primitive instincts to get along. Um, I think that's a great example. Yeah, but but there's also that I'll get over you trope. I don't need you. Um, in fact, I'll be better without you, you know? So there are a bunch of ways that good old Gloria relates to us as humans. Yeah, and I think that she she kind of teaches us the fact that human experience kind of does have a structure. We keep repeating these tropes. We keep re- repeating these themes throughout human history. So maybe Saucier knew what he was talking about. We are just structured creatures living out a pre-written plot. Do you believe in predestination? We don't have to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know, but I do have I do have one like big question that I want to pose at the end, even if we don't get to answer it. Oh, God. Okay. Stay tuned. So since we're talking about structuralism, which is mostly about finding what is already there. Identifying the patterns. Identifying the patterns, exactly. Is it possible to be original in breaking with these structures, or are we always resurrecting old ideas? Is is there ever an, an original thought? Well, I actually found a Bible verse in Ecclesiastes 1.9. It says, That which has been will be. That which is done will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. So, according to the Bible, at oh, least. God. Nope. We are... We are just recycling old ideas until we die. It's bleak. Bleak as fuck. I'm inclined to also agree that we have kind of exhausted our capacity for actual novelty. There are always new scientific discoveries, but I don't think that we're actually creating anything new. We're just kind of applying what has already been created in new ways. And that's kind of what I see in the 70s music, with one song in particular, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, which is, to me a precursor of remix culture. It's taking two 
disparate ideas, two disparate structures, and making a new structure by combining them and reorganizing them. So it's not really creating something new per se, but it's it's creating novelty through reconfiguration. Yeah, I mean, it, it's there are tons of tropes in that song, right? But it's also one of the most unique and original songs in the world to this day. Like, mm-hmm. everyone talks about Bohemian. Everyone can say every word to that song, Pretty right? Pretty much, yeah. Even the nonsense words. Yeah. It's it's really unique in its theme, in its lyrics, and in its style. So I, I don't necessarily, I don't think that I would say that you can't be original. I think that you always have to rely on your predecessors, but I think that you can create something very, very different and new and special hmm. in your own way. You just have to be brave enough to do it. I was watching a, yeah. a documentary with the existing members of Queen talking about the composition process and the release process for Bohemian Rhapsody. They actually decided to use this as the single from the album A Night at the Opera. Um, and they were talking about how their label didn't want them to do it. Their manager didn't want them to do it. They wanted them to cut out all of these opera parts that Freddie had just like had in his head. Uh, it was crazy to listen to them talk about the recording process and how Freddie just knew exactly how all of this was going to fall into place. And so he would have them record the rock parts and then the opera parts, and then he would reconfigure all this stuff. But the label didn't want him to try it because it was, first of all, a break with traditional rock structures by putting in opera and and these kind of weird vocal effects. But then it also broke from what we were talking about earlier with the verse-chorus-verse structure, and it just totally throws that out yeah, the Yeah, there's like I no mean, structure at all. Can you think of a hook from that song? No. There's not really a hook. It's all so different and so experimental, but it works, and, and, and it, it worked even better than the verse-chorus-verse structured approaches uh, of the same time that it outbeat. So when you're breaking that structure, when you are making something new and changing up the way that we see literature or music or whatever. Is there a pattern to that? Is there a structure to breaking the structure? I tend to see that a lot. And I think that the the first step in the structure of breaking the structure is to throw the rule book out the window, you know, to mm-hmm. be as crazy and divisive and and destructive of history as possible. And I think no song epitomizes this better than Anarchy in the UK by the Sex Pistols. In every way, first of all, the name Sex Pistols in a fairly conservative era. uh, (laughs) You know, I mean, parents don't even want their kids to know that that exists, but they're going into record stores. And even if they're not listening to the album, they're seeing the word Sex Pistols and having to ask their parents, what does that mean? So that's already... what does Sex Pistols mean? Does it mean something? No, I don't think it means anything. Oh. I think it's like that Cards Against Humanity card, Flying Sex Snakes. It doesn't really mean anything, but it's evocative. Okay. It okay. gets the people going. Gotcha. But in the song, he starts out by saying, I am the Antichrist. I am the anarchist. Anarchist. So he's trying to 100% undermine these social values and structures and just be as, as crazy and anarchistic as possible. Uh, I mean, the whole idea of anarchism is to destroy the structure to tear it down uh the last line of the song is i get pissed i destroy but then eventually i feel like the idea of punk rock starts to become a structure of its own oh yeah um you know i mean these band patch wearing skinny jean clad uh you know they've got chains and spikes and mohawks and you know i mean there's there's an aesthetic and a trend and a structure to being punk rock which is supposed to be all about breaking the structure, but it, it starts to become an, an amalgam of itself. Uh, it, it's its own identity and, and system, even if it doesn't want to be. 
Totally. I mean, yeah, the the rebel with a cause trope has been around since biblical times, really. Mm-hmm. And also the worship of that rebel. And I think I think the counterculture still looks a lot today like it did in the 70s. It doesn't it doesn't change that much. Oh, one other thing that I wanted to say about about the idea of just, uh, you know, rebelling for the sake of rebellion is uh, the lead singer has this line where he goes, Don't know what I want, but I know how to get it. And that to me is just showing that, like, he doesn't even really know what he wants. He knows that he wants something different, and he knows that the way to get something different is to be this violent, bombastic, crazy, system-destroying hooligan. Um, and then he'll get what he wants, because that's the way that you go about systematically breaking the system. Sure. Yeah, I think I think we can see a lot of, like, precursors to metal in the Sex Pistols. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of the same uh, social aesthetic and, and uh, an embodiment of dissatisfaction with the routine. If this conversation picks your interest, you should check out our episode on metal. You should. I think you'd enjoy it. It's too bad we didn't do a whole episode on punk, because I think, I think there's a lot to get out of that that we didn't get out of metal. Just for variety's sake. Anyway, Bailey, are you about to ready to wrap it up? We talked a lot longer Nearly. than we thought we would. Yeah. Do you think that it's possible to actually... This was a question that I think Saucier dealt with a lot. Do you think that we can actually think without a structure like language? Can we form thoughts without language? Oh, man, that's always been such a mindfuck for me. Like, that's why I got so interested in structuralism when I first started learning about it, but it's also the thing that gives me the most consternation. Like, I don't know. I would like to think that we can, because otherwise, like, as infants, how do we even have the framework necessary to begin to adopt a structure? There has to be something. It's not just a void that somehow you cram enough baby talk and, uh, you know, associative imagery into and then that's how we learn language there yeah. there has to be something that we can anchor to before we have any kind of formalized system and maybe maybe it doesn't need to be formalized maybe we we create our own sort of structured approach to learning how to interact with and communicate with the world you know i mean we start to learn that i don't know when i dig at my eyes with my finger it hurts and so then I don't do that. And so that's kind of a that's kind of a structured set of rules. Weird. If A, if you dig at your eye with your finger, then B, it hurts. So if you don't want B, then don't do A. And even <laughs> if I even if I can't put it into a formalized approach like that, like I'm already creating I'm 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 creating a structure by which to view the world. So I, I think that there is always something, and I, I that's just such a trip to think about. But yeah, I, I think that everything does require a structure. I think it's super limiting to say that we have to be able to say and hear certain mouth sounds to think. No, um, no, no, and that's not what I'm. That's not what I'm saying. I I know you're saying the opposite. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm agreeing with you. Oh. Um, nice. Yeah. No, there there are people who who can't hear or speak, and I think they are still communicating just as well, if not maybe in in a way that we don't quite understand. Yeah, it, it might be a little bit more simple, but we still have thoughts. We didn't always have words and language and music to guide us. Um, we find other ways of communicating. Do you ever consider just how extraordinary it is that Helen Keller was able to even learn the most basic form of communication? It is pretty amazing. Or to teach somebody like that, and then then the the levels that she was able to excel to. There's got to yeah. There's got to be something. Yeah. Deep-seated that allows us to start to put together 
a framework for understanding the world, even even before language, even before visual and sensory input, really. Yeah, it proves that it's possible. Although, I mean, that's... God, we're getting into too big of a rabbit hole here, but if she didn't have tactile sensory input, do you think she would be able to? If she literally was just a consciousness in a jar, in a black void? I think in that case, she would not be in a jar. I think she would still be able to lead just as rich and fulfilling a life that maybe we would not have with our experiences. But I think that it's very limiting to say that, to reduce her down to that kind of existence. I'm reducing anybody to that existence. I mean, if you had no input, if you were just your consciousness, you know, I mean, like, if, if you die and your body disappears, and then it's just you in some kind of formless void with no input, how would you... I mean, I guess you have the benefit of having already created a system of, of language and thought, but do you think that you could create one from scratch? If you but were just a, a consciousness? Form, you're not a, just a consciousness. If you, if you can't hear or feel or speak, you're not just a consciousness. How would you know? You can't feel your hand closing on itself. You can't feel your body in space if you don't have the tactile component. If you had none of your sensory input... I feel like you would just be a consciousness. And then where does the structure of language arise from? And, and not just well, not just language like English, but like the structure of thought and, and being. Well, maybe it's just an existence that we can't understand based on our own experiences with the world. But I don't think that it's fair to just say it would be nothing. I'm not saying it would be nothing. I'm saying what would it be? That's the question I'm asking. Like, I'm I mean, can, we can't even wrap our minds around that. The best right, that we can exactly. do is just kind of baselessly say, well, it might be something that we don't know. But right, I mean, if, totally. we're, if we're trying to figure out whether everything is structuralism. But we can't. But we can't. And that's where we'll leave it. Until next time. Um, if any of you have a perspective on that, uh, or know more scientifically than we do, which is almost certainly the case, please weigh in and let us know what you think. And... Maybe we can feature you on the next episode of Structuralism, because we clearly are obsessed with it. Did you have anything else you wanted to add before we leave the folks for the day, Bailey? I don't think so. Um, I, we would really appreciate it if you would review us on iTunes if you like this episode. Um, and let us know what you have to say about the 70s, or if you have any input for what we should talk about in the 80s. And yeah, that'll be a good next step toward wrapping up the series. We're going to go through the 2010s. But... After that, um, we might end up trying out something a little bit new for a little while and, and put this one on hold. We'll definitely come back. But uh, just something to be thinking about, and we hope that you'll follow us on whatever adventure we end up doing next. Feel free to follow us at Track Talk Show on Twitter. Email us at tracktalkshow at gmail.com. And don't forget to send Review us. Thank you. Only nice things or mean things. Whatever you feel. Lay your heart bare. Bye-bye. Bye. I see a little silhouette of a man Scaramouche, Scaramouche Can you do the fandango? Thunderbolts and lightning Very, very frightening What the fuck?